Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2012. Titled, Growing in Christ, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 10, December 1-7, The Law and the Gospel. Sabbath afternoon, December 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again. We come to you to learn more about you and your will for us, to be impressed by your greatness and your love and your character. And as we do so this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, help us to be humble as we let you work within our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who said, I know him, and does not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Let's read that again, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The key thought for this week is, God's entire moral law is what reveals our sin, and thus our need for a saviour. The law and the gospel are, therefore, inseparable. The law and the character of God are central to the great controversy, and when the controversy is finally over, God's law and character will be vindicated before the onlooking universe. Until then, the controversy rages on. As human beings, we wind up on one side or another, and the side we choose decides which master we follow. In the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Those who choose to serve the Lord do so out of love and appreciation for what has been done for them through Christ. Having been buried with Christ by baptism into his death, they know that the body of sin was destroyed so that they no longer need to serve their former master, sin. But now have been given the freedom to obey God and his law. In this week's lesson, we will look at the nature of the law, its purpose and its relation to the good news of God's saving grace. For rightly understood, God's law helps to reveal just what God's grace has offered us in Christ. Sunday, December 2, God's Laws and Regulations the word Torah is a commonly used Hebrew word in the Old Testament and is often translated as law. The New Testament uses the Greek nomos, law, to translate Torah. Torah means direction or guidance. Because the Bible is a record of God's relationship with humans, law in the Bible generally refers to all of God's instructions to his people. And... Because God himself is good and righteous, and guides and instructs his people in goodness and righteousness, we rightly assume that his law reveals his goodness 
and righteousness. Or, as we like to say, the law is a reflection of God's character. Question. What do the following texts tell us about the law and ultimately about God? First of all, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the next one is Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And then Psalm 119, verse 151 and 152. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. And then in the same chapter, verse 172. My tongue shall speak of your word. It is by the way of the Bible that God has explicitly revealed himself to humankind. As one reads through the sacred text, one comes across an abundance of materials that are basically directions or instructions that cover many aspects of human life. Morality, ethics, health, sexuality, diet, work, etc. Some of these instructions are clearly universal. Others appear to be more limited in time and scope. But because all of them are God's instructions, or Torah, The greatest care is needed in the development of principles that help us to understand what is universal and what is limited. Seventh-day Adventists and many other Christian groups generally make a distinction between ceremonial laws, regulations that teach the place of salvation by symbols and ritual practices, civil laws, instructions regarding the community life of the nation of ancient Israel, and moral laws, instructions of God's pattern of conduct for humanity. The book of Leviticus contains many ceremonial laws, especially with regard to the sanctuary service and its ritual system. The nature of civil laws and the principle of justice underlying them can be seen, for example, in Exodus 23, verses 1 to 9. Then there is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which most Christians, in theory at least, believe are still God's law for all humanity. So to finish today, look through Exodus chapter 23 and verses 1 to 9. What universal moral principles can we take from what was given specifically to ancient Israel? Exodus 23 verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger. For you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers 
in the land of Egypt. Monday, December 3, The Moral Law Today Most Christians claim that the Ten Commandments are God's universal moral code. This view is seen, for instance, in various legal battles in the United States in which Christians have sought to have the Ten Commandments posted in various public places, especially public schools. Years ago, Alabama was involved in a legal battle involving a state judge who refused to remove a monument of the Ten Commandments from a courtroom, despite orders from a higher court to do so. In the minds of many, the Ten Commandments, far from being invalidated, remain God's legal standard for morality. And with good reason too. To begin with, although the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, was codified at Sinai, the book of Genesis suggests that most of the commandments were known before then. Question. What do the following texts reveal about the existence of the law prior to Mount Sinai? First of all, Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 to 4. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And then the same book, chapter 2 and verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And the next one is in chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And the next one is chapter 39 and verses 7. To nine. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And then the same book, chapter 44 and verse 8. And that reads, Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
And finally, chapter 12 and verse 18. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? On logical grounds alone, it makes no sense for the Ten Commandments to have been purely a Jewish institution, something intended only for a particular people in a particular time and place. Doesn't it make sense that moral issues such as stealing, killing, adultery and idolatry are universally wrong, regardless of culture? Also, when the Bible is so clear that sin is defined through the law, as in Romans 7, 7, the notion of the law being abrogated or superseded is, on the face of it, an illogical position for any Bible-believing Christian. Question. How does James chapter 2 and verse 11 help us to understand the perpetuity of God's law? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. To finish today, 1 John 5.3 says that obedience to God's commandments is an expression of our love for him. What does that mean? Why is obedience to the commandments an expression of this love? Tuesday, December 4, The Law and the Gospel Though many understand that the Ten Commandments remain binding in the lives of Christians, the role that they play in the plan of salvation can be confusing. If we're not saved by the keeping of the law, then what is its purpose? Question. How do the following texts help us to understand the role that the law plays in the lives of those who are saved by grace? First of all, Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And our next verse is Psalm 119, verses 5 and 6. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, that I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. And Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness except the law had said, You shall not covet. The law was never designed to be a means of salvation. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, the law creates in the sinner a need for the grace or gospel of Christ. By pointing out what is right, what is good and what is true, those who fall short of that standard, which is all of us, realise our need of salvation. In this sense, the law points us to the need for the gospel, the need of grace. This grace comes to us through Jesus. The function of the law, even in the Old Testament, was to show us our need of salvation. It was never a means of providing that salvation. 
From the book Five Views on Law and Gospel by Walter C. Kaiser, published in 1993, pages 394 and 95, we read, To ask whether the law can bring salvation is to ask the wrong question as far as Scripture is concerned, in both the Old and New Testaments. Never does either Testament affirm, imply, or even hint that this might ever have been the case. It is a further error to argue that the writer of Hebrews 10.1-4 corrected the law as if it had taught that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The sacrifices were pictures, types and models of the one perfect sacrifice that was to come. So to finish today, look around at what violation of God's law has done to humanity. How has your own life been impacted by the violation of God's law? What does your answer tell you about just how relevant the law remains? Wednesday, December 5, The Sabbath and the Law As we saw in Monday's lesson, many Christians still believe in the binding nature of God's law. Again, as long as one accepts the reality of sin, it's hard to see how anyone could believe anything else. Yet, as we know so well, the whole issue of the Christian obligation to the law suddenly gets very murky when the question of obedience to the fourth commandment arises, particularly in regard to the seventh day itself. In fact, The irony is that the Alabama judge who got himself in trouble for his insistence on placing the Ten Commandment monument in the courtroom was himself living in violation of that law because, however strict a Sunday keeper he might have been, he wasn't keeping the biblical commandment to rest on the seventh day. If we take the Bible for what it says, then, according to James, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Chapter 2, verse 10. Then the judge was guilty of violating every precept of the law that he insisted upon leaving in the courthouse. Exodus 20, verses 9 and 10 explains the Sabbath commandment. The text is careful to point out when the Sabbath occurs, the seventh day, and how it is to be kept, cessation of regular work by all under one's shelter, in order for its holiness to be guarded. In the New American Commentary, On Exodus, volume 2, page 460, Douglas K. Stewart writes, The Sabbath is not portrayed as a day of recuperation from those too weak to keep working day after day without rest. It is portrayed rather as a stoppage, good for everyone, for the purpose of refocusing on holiness. All concerns that stem from belonging to God, which is what holiness is, in order to enjoy God's blessings of that day, and its potential. So to finish today, the spiritual potential of the Sabbath is embodied in what it symbolises. What do the following texts tell us about the spiritual meaning of the Sabbath? And how has your own experience with the Sabbath helped you to better appreciate what these texts teach us? First of all, Exodus chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. Now in six days... 
sorry, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And then Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And the third text is Exodus chapter 31 and verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 20. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And finally, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 to 9. For we who have believed do enter that rest, and he has said, So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he had spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place... They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter in, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Thursday, December 6, the Sabbath and the Gospel. In the final question of yesterday's lesson, we looked at both Exodus 20, verses 11 and 12, and Deuteronomy 5.15. What we see here is the Sabbath pointing us toward two ideas, creation and redemption, two concepts that are very powerfully linked in the Bible. God is not only our creator, he is also our redeemer, and both these important spiritual truths are brought home to us every week, every seventh day as we rest on the Sabbath according to the commandment, as it says in Luke twenty-three fifty-six, just as the women who came with him, Jesus, from Galilee, did. Question. Read Colossians 1, 14-16 and John 1, 1-14. How do these texts link Jesus as both our Creator and Redeemer? Colossians 1, 14-16 In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And John chapter 1 
verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness to the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Since the divine law is as sacred as God himself, only one equal with God could make atonement for its transgression. None but Christ could redeem fallen man from the curse of the law and bring him again into harmony with heaven. Ellen White writes that in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 63. Only as creator, only as one equal with God, only as the one who had made all that was made, as it says in John 1, 3, could Jesus be the one to redeem fallen humanity. By pointing us to Christ as our creator and redeemer, the Sabbath is a powerful symbol of the gospel of grace. In fact, our resting on the Sabbath reveals that we indeed are not saved by the works of the law, but by what Christ has done for us. Thus, Sabbath rest becomes a symbol of the rest we have in Jesus. It suggests here we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 to 9. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Salvation too is restoration, it is recreation. A process that not only starts now when we have accepted Jesus, but that culminates and climaxes with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. These verses show even more clearly how creation and redemption are linked, and both these crucial truths are embodied in the Sabbath commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 65. And verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
And another familiar one in Revelation 21, verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. To finish the day, it's one thing to say that you are a Sabbath keeper and to even rest on the Sabbath. The scribes and Pharisees did that. But it's another to experience the fullness and richness of the Sabbath. What about your own Sabbath keeping? What might you do in order to better reap the spiritual and physical blessings that God provides for us on the Sabbath day? Friday, December 7. From the Adventist Review and the Sabbath Herald, November 24, 1896, Ellen White writes, God would have us realise that he has a right to mind, soul, body and spirit, to all that we possess. We are his by creation and by redemption. As our creator, he claims our entire service. As our redeemer, he has a claim of love as well as of right, of love without a parallel. Our bodies, our souls, our lives are his, not only because they are his free gift, but because he constantly supplies us with his benefits and gives us strength to use our faculties. And then from the Desire of Ages, page 289, And the Lord said, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honourable, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. To all who receive the Sabbath as a sign of Christ's creative and redeeming power, it will be a delight. Seeing Christ in it, they delight themselves in him. The Sabbath points them to the works of creation as an evidence of his mighty power in redemption. While it calls to mind the lost peace of Eden, it tells of peace restored through the Saviour, and every object in nature repeats his invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One. Jeremiah thirty one thirty three reads But this but but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Some try to use this text to show that the law, or really the seventh day Sabbath, has been abrogated under the new covenant. What's wrong with this line of reasoning? In fact, in what ways does this text reinforce the Seventh-day Adventist position regarding the law, including the Sabbath? 2. Because we believe that the law, including the Sabbath, should be kept, why must we be careful of falling into the trap of legalism? In class, talk about what legalism is and how we can avoid it. And 3. Think through the role of the law in the Great Controversy. Why, in his attack on God's law, has Satan singled out the Sabbath commandment for special attention? Why was that such a brilliant move on his part?
Inside Story, The Way of Salvation Brenda Mwendi shares her faith in central Kenya. The Way of Salvation I'm a single young adult and I live with my parents. Recently, some Seventh-day Adventists held meetings in my neighbourhood in Nairobi, Kenya. I heard some of other young people talking about the meetings. They said that I could hear some good preaching and see movies about Jesus. I decided to go. The pastor's message touched my heart. I decided to go again the next day, and again I was blessed. I wanted to talk to the pastor who had spoken, but he and a group of others were on their way to a meeting with the youth. So I went with them. What a blessing I received. I told my parents that I was attending the Seventh-day Adventist meetings, and they weren't happy about it. They told me that I shouldn't have gone there. I explained that I felt God's presence there and that I had to listen to the message so I could decide for myself the way to salvation. The next day I told the pastor that my parents weren't happy that I was attending the meetings. He prayed for me. I continued attending the meetings. I decided to stay with a Seventh-day Adventist family for a few days so that I could learn more about what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Then one night I saw my parents attending the meeting. I greeted them and they seemed happy to see me. I told them that I wanted to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church because I had been studying the Bible and realised these Christians taught the truth. They agreed, and I returned home with them. Not only did they allow me to continue attending the meetings, but they attended with me. I thank God that I am now a believer. Praise God that my parents allowed me to go to the meetings. I have been baptised, and my precious parents are preparing for baptism. I know that it was prayers... I prayed, as well as the prayers of those who prayed with me, that touched my parents' hearts. I thank God for the people who sacrifice their time and give their offerings so that others, such as my parents and I, can know the truth. I urge young people to keep on praying, for he will do something powerful in their lives. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.